0: Dot com slash lincoln Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I want to ask you two favors. One, go to powerthepolls.org and sign up to be an elections worker in your area. Already, 150,000 of your fellow Americans have signed up to do this, but we need help in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Texas, Florida, and other key states next voting has begun in a lot of places gang if you're not sure whether or not it's begun in your state go to vote.org and determine whether or not you can already cast your ballot early whether or not you should be expecting an absentee ballot and certainly if you have gotten that absentee ballot vote it and turn it in ASAP we can do this three weeks to go let's get it done and now on with the show (music) Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm once again joined by Bob Brandon, president and CEO of the Fair Election Center, a national nonpartisan voting rights and election reform organization whose mission is to use litigation and advocacy to remove barriers to registration and voting. Bob, welcome back. Thanks, Reed. And I'm glad to be here. So, Bob, um, as we're recording this three weeks from election day, here we are. You know we've both been to this rodeo well i'm sure we could count them but we probably don't want to you know remember we used to tell as a partisan right we used to say this is the most important election of our lives (laughs) right you can't skip it these people can't win because of this and remember back then it was marginal tax rates that were the end of the country now it's something i think far more existential from my perspective anyway so let's talk about first how you see the election processes of this year so far because we've had all the primaries but how have you seen it up to this point so far with all of the new laws that got passed in 21 and earlier this year how are you guys seeing the election landscape three weeks from election day
1: it's an interesting landscape we've obviously came off the highest turnout election in history in the midst of a pandemic so we certainly have shown that people have the resilience and the interest in being involved in their democracy. But we continue to also see, particularly after that turnout election, a lot more barriers thrown in the way of voters. And I think it remains to be seen, because you can look at those barriers in two ways. One, they definitely get in the way. You know, there's new laws that you also have to learn and navigate. And they're also just laws that are straight up, make it more difficult, shorten early voting periods, requiring more IDs etc. But at the same time, that move has also stimulated a lot of counter move by voters who say, I'm not going to let somebody take my vote away. And I think we're seeing some of both. We always will. But it certainly seems like people do understand that this is one of the most important elections. And what I mean by that is not about the issues, as you alluded to, but rather, is our democracy resilient enough, are people committed enough to protect it, to go out and vote in large numbers in spite of some threats, lots of lies and concerns. And I think, you know, our job is to let people know, number one, there's strength in numbers. Number two, you don't let people intimidate you into not voting because that's what they want. And make sure you ask your friends and neighbors
0: to join you. Let me ask about the intimidation piece for a second, because There's a long history of that in this country, I think, particularly in southern states. Let's be clear about that. You know, I mean, you could have it anywhere, but historically, that's where it's been, Bob. As we're recording this, there was a video released out of Florida where a number of people were arrested for voting or I think attempting to vote. They were former felons that in, I believe it was a 2016 or 2018 referendum that had been re-enfranchised, nonviolent felons, DeSantis and the Republican legislature there almost immediately put in a poll tax. So it's basically, you had to pay court fees and all these other stuff. One gentleman that I heard on the tape, Bob, had gone, he was getting a driver's license, and the person at the county said, do you want to register to vote? And he said, he admitted, he said, I'm a felon. And he said, well, are you off probation? He said, I am. Okay, well, then you're okay to vote. And then, you know, this election police force that DeSantis set up arrests these guys. Now, Bob, I'm not a lawyer, but it seems to me I thought that part of, you know, voter fraud was one was intent. But two, I mean, talk about intimidation. There could be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in Florida who are rehabilitated. They have done their time. They have become part of society. Again, they have been the citizens we're asking them to be who may say, you know what, like I have this chance, but I'm just not going to take it.
1: Yeah, it's a, unfortunately part of a continued pattern. We were involved, actually, before that referendum passed with a lawsuit that got a ruling out of the federal district court that the system to re-enfranchise felons was unconstitutional. It was completely arbitrary. Rick Scott and three other statewide elected officials had a parole board where people had to go in in person and plead their case. It took an average of nine years to get in front of them. And then they'd be confronted with, yeah, I'm just not feeling it today. I don't think I'm going to give you your rights back. It was completely arbitrary, and the judge agreed with us. It generated a lot of editorial coverage that said, okay, this system is really bad, but the voters of Florida have a chance to fix it and change it in November, which they did.
0: By an overwhelming margin, because I think... In Florida now, I think a ballot measure has to pass with 60 percent of the vote.
1: Right. This was a change in the Constitution. So it did. It needed to be 60 percent and it got over 60 percent. And it was supported in a very bipartisan way. Redemption, you know, is a creed for many conservative religious leaders and second chances and all of that. But as you mentioned, this is pure intimidation because there are tens of thousands of felons who now have the right to register and vote they've done their time, as you mentioned. And if they have a question now at all, whether or not they're qualified, because one of the things the legislature did after the population in Florida spoke was they said, yeah, complete your sentence, but you got to pay your fines and fees. We, we went to court on that too, because you can be a felon and pay a fine restitution. Okay. That's part of your penalty. But when you pay a court fee, that's no different than the person that got a traffic stop or a DUI. It's not related to punishment. It's just court fees. And it turns out the counties in Florida did a terrible job of keeping track of who owed and who didn't owe court fees. So they don't even know who has paid, quote, their fees or not. And then you take on top of that the bad faith of the governor to decide that we just need to intimidate a few people by threatening them, you know, because voting illegally is also a felony. So then, then are you back with all of the potential consequences of having a second felony on your record? So it was very calculated in my view, and we'll see. You know, I think there are many, many Floridians who have a felony record of all stripes. And we'll see how many people turn out. We, you know, there's been a lot of work done to kind of help them get the record on what they owe, if anything, and to pay it. Some of the bigger counties have eliminated the fees and just said, you don't owe them, and then give them a clean bill of health. But it is one example, and it's probably one of the more explicit examples, where the governor is using his police power to intimidate voters, which sounds an
0: awful lot like Bull Connor unleashing dogs on people who want their basic rights. So let me stay in Florida for a second, Bob, because obviously Hurricane Ian devastated parts of southwest Florida you know, particularly Lee County and some other areas there that tend to be very Republican in nature. Now, a lot of the voting restrictions that DeSantis and the legislature put in place over the last couple of years are now going to make it, frankly, very difficult for people to participate in those areas because, you know, let's take Fort Myers Beach is destroyed. There's basically nothing left there. So now they're trying to sort of rework the rules, Bob, to make it easier for people they believe are predominantly likely to vote for them. So like, I am all for ensuring the franchise of everybody. But this seems to be like, oh, well, shoot, our people can't participate now. We better figure out how to undo some of this stuff. As we
1: all remember, most jurisdictions around the country changed the rules during the pandemic and loosened them up. And then there was a lot of backlash about, well, why are we letting everybody vote by mail? Why are we letting everybody vote early when we used to not? Why do we let people vote that don't have an excuse that's a narrow excuse that used to be on the books? So it's happened before, and frankly, it's happened during some of the disasters before in Florida and elsewhere, where polls have been kept open longer, where other provisional procedures have been put in place if people can't find their documents to if they need them you know they they can do a provisional ballot and try to deal with it so i don't really know i mean it is ironic because frankly the expansion of early voting no excuse absentee and vote by mail has been a convenience for everybody and traditionally anybody who works in campaigns will say those voters tend to be republicans
0: well they were i mean look i mean as a former republican bob i mean Once the absentee ballot thing became widespread, the Republican Party of my day, which is now years ago, really understood the efficiency by which you could, first of all, tell your voters to apply for it. Tell them when they're getting it. Tell them how to vote. Tell them to return it. Now, I know Bob Brandon's voted because the county registrar told me I could take him off my targeting list. Right. I can bank that vote. Now I can go through those four weeks before Election Day. I have a very good idea of the number of votes I need and from whom I need them to win. But, of course, Donald Trump said it's all BS and wrecked his own reelection campaign in the process.
1: Kind of the great irony.
0: That's what we should call this time, Bob, the great irony.
1: Right. <laughs> right. You know, I think the fact that we're trying to make things easier across the board shouldn't be lost on people, but there's this big counterforce, and it's a group of legislators and policymakers who believe that an expanded electorate is a threat to them. As I think you know, we work with a lot of young people, uh, college-based people, through our Campus Vote Project, and, you know, that's traditionally a group that also has barriers because of the transiency of where they live. You know, they may be first-time voters, and they're away from home, they have to establish a residence, and they have increasingly voted at higher and higher numbers. They used to vote at like half the rate of everybody else. In the 2020 election, college students turned out at a 66% rate, which is just under the 67 or 68% rate that the national
0: turnout was. So, Bob, tell us a little bit more about the youth project and what you're doing on the campuses. As you said, I mean, if you've been to school, right, you live in town A, college is in town B, potentially another state. Do you see additional barriers to those people, one? And two, what's your sense of the enthusiasm amongst college age and younger voters to participate this year?
1: Well, first of all, there's always barriers, as I mentioned, for college students. It's increased In a number of states where they've just explicitly been targeted by legislators, you know, in Montana, for example, they eliminated the use of college IDs for voting just two years ago. And there are many other barriers put in place. You know, I think in terms of enthusiasm, the record turnout in 2018 and 2020 of young people generally, and that's 18 to 24-year-olds, led to the election of the youngest, most diverse Congress in history. And when you tell that to young people, they go, oh, my vote really does matter. That's made a difference. I think also while you saw early on after the last election, a lot of complaining that, you know, well, what's the administration done? What, you know, what's really, is anybody doing anything to help me? Now you're seeing the movement on climate issues. You've seen movement on student loan forgiveness, which in spite of the debate in Washington, which is all over the place about whether it's good or bad it resonates with young people who have student debt. And now the the marijuana initiative is probably helpful. So all I'm saying is that means for some people, my vote actually made a difference. And I think that's the key because for years when we worked with young people, it was kind of like, my vote doesn't matter, mainly because politics sucks and they won't deliver for me. They don't care about the things I care about. So I think that's changing a bit. And then there's a big motivation, I think now, about watching the potential of some very important privacy rights, whether it's access to women's health or potential other privacy rights they are in jeopardy. And with elected officials actually moving against some of those rights, that's also a big motivating factor. So I think we're going to see, and I wouldn't have said this six months ago, a very good turnout from young voters this year. And they have some good standards and good values. You know, it's a much more diverse community. They're much more open to new ideas and new people and different people and different everything. So I think that's important. We also work with community colleges, and 42% of all the undergrads in the country are at a community college. It's a really important constituency.
0: And let me just say as an aside, Bob, the community college system, I think, is an enormous asset and resource that you said 42% of undergrads like that's an enormous number i think it often doesn't get the attention or the credit that it deserves
1: yeah we could have a do a whole show on the importance of community colleges because number one they are the first stop for many people because of the affordability question but they are all extremely good academic institutions with very committed professors and a committed student body we love working with community college students and you're also opening up not only their eyes to the, the power they have in our democracy, but it means it's a bridge back to the community they come from. So if they're in an immigrant community, it makes a big difference to who they can convince their parents and their neighbors and so on that they need to be engaged as well. So, yes, young people, I think, are important and we need to continue to, we're going to continue to try to do everything we can to make sure they have the information they need to vote and to get a vote that counts.
0: I want to spend a few minutes on some of your other major initiatives as we come onto election day here, but I want to bring up something about, I don't know, it was two or three weeks ago, Steve Bannon, who is no friend of ours, was touting on his podcast, which if you haven't listened to it, I have, I wouldn't recommend it. It is mind, literally mind bending, but said that he's personally recruited 11,000 people across the country, Bob, to go out and challenge every vote. Are you all seeing that on the ground? Are you seeing evidence of this so far? Not really. You know, I think this
1: came up in 2016 when Trump told everybody to go to the polls and make sure nobody cheats, particularly in large cities. You know, two things. One, it doesn't matter that you're recruited to be a challenger. You can't be a challenger in a lot of places unless you're chosen by the election officials. So that's number one. Number two, being a challenger doesn't mean you can stop everybody from voting. You have to have a specific reason in in almost every state to challenge somebody's right to vote. So there's a lot of constraints on that. And I think it's part of this narrative, just like we've heard earlier this summer about, you know, recruiting tens of thousands of poll workers. Same thing. A poll worker can do only so much. And if they misbehave or if a challenger misbehaves or an observer misbehaves, they'll be thrown out of the polling place. So it's not to say that it can't happen. But I think we'll see it in isolated places. And, you know, Bannon and others who are blustering about this are mostly trying to, again, intimidate people and say, don't go to the polls because it could
0: be a problem for you. On the election officials front, some are elected secretaries of state, county clerks. Some are, you know, appointed. Do you have any concerns? I know we've seen a couple of crazy stories out of places like Colorado. Do you have any concern over some who are turning their roles into purely partisan? Efforts as we get toward election day.
1: I mean, yes, but I think it's a very isolated situation. As you mentioned, the vast majority of people that run elections, Republicans and Democrats, because they usually are one or the other, take their job seriously. And you know, in terms of elections, they want to run elections so that everybody gets to vote. There are always some little outliers here and there, people that want to bend the rules a little bit. And we do know there's certainly people running now that don't believe in elections. They want, you know, partisan legislatures to be in charge of deciding who wins and who loses. And, you know, let's just hope that the voters are smarter than to put somebody in power to run elections when they don't really believe in our democracy.
0: You know, the guy Fincham in Arizona was just bashing mail-in voting, but I guess he's taken advantage of it like the last eight elections. The guy Marchant in Nevada has basically said, me and the other secretaries of state will do whatever we need to in 2024 to make sure Donald Trump gets reelected. Of course, I guess he'd have to run first. But those are the things I think that, Bob, concern me, too, is that you do have these folks, and again, they tend to be Republican, you know, unfortunately, like they don't want to operate, they don't want to manage an election process, they want to control an election process. And I think that's a distinction with an important difference. Or they want to destroy
1: an election process, because there are some who just, you know, number one, this is a hard job. You actually have to know what you're doing. And that is the unfortunate other side of this, which is the threats to existing election officials that have made a number of them just throw up their hands and say, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, I'm tired of being threatened myself. I'm tired of having my family threatened. And they're retiring. So to take their place, there's still going to be people taking their place that are trying to do a good job, but they're not experienced. So that's always an issue. But I do think, you know, in the end, we have a very robust group of people running elections who are committed to the one thing that makes this country great, which is our democracy that's endured all these years.
0: Well, and, you know, you bring up the individual election officials. And I just think about the January 6th hearings of this past summer, where it started at the ground level, right, in Atlanta, where they were counting votes. And, you know, Shea Moss got up there and her mom, Ruby, got up there and talked about, you know, how they were trying to do this, that, you know, they'd been threatened, their lives had been threatened. Shay's grandmother can't take her walks down the street. And then you go all the way to the top of the process to Raffensberger, Right. Who, you know, his daughter in law. Right. Who's the Raffensburger lost their son. You know, they're being harassed. Right. She's being harassed. Raffensperger and her wife are getting death threats. And, you know, Bob, I'll just say this. You get your first death threat. You take it pretty goddamn seriously. You know, like you're trying to do the right thing. You believe in what you're doing. In the case of Shea and her mom or or Brad Raffinsberger, you know, you could say whatever you want about Raffensperger. When the time came, he did the thing he needed to do. And he is literally they are all feeling the effects of doing their jobs the right way for the people of Atlanta, maybe in the case of Shea or the state of Georgia. In the case of Raffensperger, who not only, again, told Trump, I'm not going to find you the 11000 votes. And then it went on to help certify. And Kemp did that, too. I mean, have you experienced anything like that? in your? I mean, you've been doing this a while. Have you seen anything like
1: that? What we're seeing is a lot of anonymous threats to people. And there's obviously some unfortunate explicit threats like you're describing in Fulton County. But generally speaking, and, you know, we, we run a big program to recruit poll workers and encourage people to help their neighbors vote, as I think you know, with Power mm-hmm. the Polls. And it sure. started with our work elections program for a number of years. You know, we're still seeing people signing up. We have about 150,000 plus wow. people signing up this year in a midterm. And, you know, there's still places that are looking for poll workers, but generally speaking, people are stepping up. There's a little bit of this reaction like, I'm going to be the one to help out rather than let these anonymous people intimidate my friends and neighbors from voting. So I do think we're going to see mostly a lot of good people doing what they always do on election day. You know, we call poll workers and election officials our our election heroes because they really are. And, you know, as I said, they work long hours, they have a very hard job and they do the best they can and we need to support them.
0: I mean, Bob, that's the one thing, too, is, you know, billions of dollars are spent every election cycle for candidates of both parties up and down the ballot from dog catcher to United States Senate. But it's now right because so many states have already started voting Michigan here in Utah. Ballots are dropping this week. I believe Arizona's already got their ballots. Nevada, maybe two. But this is where the rubber meets the road in American democracy, right? These are the folks without whom this doesn't work. And I'll tell you, the fact that you've got 150,000 people signed up already and you need more, but they're saying not on my watch, I'm not going to be intimidated, makes me as proud to be an American as anything I could think of recently and also gives me hope and faith that the process will work three weeks from today and two years and four years hence, because if that breaks down, Bob, then the rest of it doesn't matter, right? If you can't find folks who are willing to sit at that table, check people in, count the votes. If they say, I know it's got to get done, but it's just not, I can't do it now. I'm just too scared to do it. Bad things start to happen. Well, we saw extraordinary
1: turnout in 2020. Our work actually generated 700,000 people. And that was a, in a, in a presidential year when many of the traditionally older poll workers would not work because, and then they shouldn't because of the, the pandemic and their exposure to the virus. And this year, we, you know, we have a good, robust group. Uh, you know, And also mention there's a really interesting, we have a lot of partner organizations that are urging everybody to vote. We work with a lot of our students to do the same. There's a group called Vet the Vote, which is called upon veterans to step up and they've, through Power of the Polls, have recruited about 30,000 people to sign up. Not everybody gets selected because there are some places where they've already got people. But, you know, it's just an example. It's like they feel very strongly that they've done their duty as serving this country. And now it's really important to protect the democracy that they've been fighting for.
0: So, Bob, tell us about Power the Polls and how folks can get involved and where specifically you still need the most help. It's around
1: the country in different places. We know that in Pennsylvania, in some of the cities, in Michigan, in some of the cities, in Florida, in Texas, this usually is the cities or the urban areas that are more likely to need folks because it's where the bigger numbers of voters are, and so therefore the number of precincts. But you can go to powerthepolls.org and sign up, and you will find out fairly quickly if there's still need or whether there's a waiting list and power the polls, even. even if there's a waiting list, there's a waiting, waiting list that we'll keep. So we always wind up with, on election day or the day before, somebody calling up and saying, gosh, we need 20 more people. Do you have people in the area that wanted to do this? And we'd give them a list and they'll call, get people at the
0: last minute. Well, guys, again, go to power the polls wherever you live, go there. But if you live in those areas or those states that Bob has just mentioned, get in there, gang, right? These are, the, from our perspective, Bob, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada, right, guys? And also, Vet the Vote as well. If you are a, a veteran, thank, first, thank you for your service, but second, and you want to participate, you want to continue that service to your community, to your state, to your county, to your country, go to Vet the Vote and participate in this. Guys, I cannot say it enough. You've heard me, whether or not it's join the union, power the polls, Vet the Vote. Guys, this is where the stuff matters, this is where it gets done. This is where, you know, it's like uh, we get a lot of questions, Bob. What else can I do other than write a check or send a tweet or like something on Facebook? Guys, this is tangible. This is analog. Get off the couch. Get away from cable news and get someplace where you're making a difference. You absolutely can do it. I hope you do it. Bob, is there anything else that our folks need to know? You know, the thing you, with everybody
1: needs to know is, are they registered? Now, many of the registration deadlines have passed just recently, just this past week but there are many other states where you can still register up until the middle of this week or the middle of next week. There are 13 or so states where you can register right up until election day with uh, same-day registration. So first, check your registration. Make sure it's up to date. If you need to update it, update it. Even if you're past the deadline, you can update your registration if you are registered, just like you may have changed your address within your county or something. So just do that. Secondly, know what the rules are. At Fair Election Center, we have On our website, individual voting guides for all 50 states. You can go and see the basic information you need to when is early voting. Do you need an ID? How do you find out where your polling place is, et cetera, et cetera. And then make a plan, you know, know what you're going to do to vote because some people get busy and they have a lot of obligations and they leave it to the last minute and then they miss out.
0: Well, let's not let that happen, gang. Bob, where can we find you and your organization online?
1: fairelectioncenter.org. And you can get information there under our resources page, every state, our voting guides, and learn more about our organization. And Campus Vote Project is one of our projects. It also, you can look and see some of their work at campusvoteproject.org.
0: Perfect. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen on Instagram at read underscore Galen underscore LP. And now on TikTok at Reed Galen. I don't know what I'm doing, but there I am. People are spending eight hours a day there. They should spend eight hours a day listening to me and the Lincoln Project and everything else we're doing. Bob, I want to say thank you so much to you and your entire team and to the 150,000 people who've already signed up. I hope that we can get a whole bunch more. Thank you again for joining us. Everybody else out there, check your registration make sure your parents your friends your kids if they're 18 your neighbors make sure everybody can participate if you can get out there and help the process as always gang thank you for everything and we'll see you next time thanks again to everyone for listening be sure to follow and subscribe to the lincoln project on apple podcasts spotify google or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you wanna message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you wanna personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. US. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. And Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern all shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.